Before I pray, let me say a word to all the campuses because um, unlike most weekends, uh, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow morning with Tom Steller at 9.05 and flying to Los Angeles to be a part of the memorial service for Ralph Winter, one of the most influential missionary spokesmen and statesmen of the 20th century, very significant influence in my own life. And so this recording will be on all three campuses tomorrow morning instead of just two of the campuses, which gives me an opportunity to just take two or three minutes here at the beginning to say uh, some personal words, a, a, a double request, really, two requests of you as uh, Tom and I, I leave for, for the weekend. Um, Tom and I begin our 30th year at Bethlehem together this month, next month, July. And so to fly beside him on the plane, Tom, are you in the room? Okay, He's, he, I wanna ask prayer for Katie, his daughter. That's one of the pr- prayer requests. Seems have not been good for her in the last few days. And so pray for Tom and, and Katie. And then pray for me, I begin vacation and um, I would like to come back filled with the Holy Spirit and I would like there to be big spiritual refreshment. I would like to meet the Lord Jesus in new and deep and powerful ways as I read his word and meditate on him and think and pray and and relax. So pray that way about these next weeks for me in particular as, as I go. So that's the first request. The last one is that as a, as a father to my children, I know some of you are too old to be my children, but I still feel like after almost 30 years that uh, I am a father in Israel and I have lots of children here at Bethlehem and I want very much for you to heed these two uh, final requests. Number one, while I am away, would you please not forsake the assembling of yourselves together and be faithful in corporate worship. Number two, would you imitate your leaders at Bethlehem in the way that you give financially through the summer? Um, By that I mean uh, I, as one of your leaders, love to give to Bethlehem. That's what I mean by imitating us. I love to give to Bethlehem. I do not use my position here to make money around the world. I live on my income at Bethlehem. I tithe and beyond with my income at Bethlehem and everything else that I make goes to Bethlehem outside this church. I love getting checks. Because when I get them, like this week, I got a surprise $100 check in the mail for some little thing I participated in in the week. I love, wrong thing, I love taking the check, turning it over, and writing, pay to Bethlehem. It is one of the sweetest moments of my worshiping life. So I just want you to know that I, as one of your leaders, am thrilled with what this church is about. I am thrilled with our theology. I'm thrilled with our TCT vision. I'm thrilled with the staff. I'm thrilled with the programming for youth and adults and singles. I'm thrilled with page two in this worship folder. You know what the page is worth right here? It's called Pray for Our Missionaries and Tent Makers. This this represents about $1.2 million from our budget. And that's the least thing it represents. So I love giving to these people. Most of these people have gone out into missions since I've been here. My life is devoted to keeping them on the field. This is a missionary sending thing called Bethlehem. It is worth my money. So all that to say, Imitate your leaders, especially during the summer, and love to give to this church. We passed a 15.2%, I don't know what it is, a $9.2 million budget last year. We are giving 
uh, a little bit ahead of last year, and we are falling short of the budget. So that's an encouragement to make this summer one of the most remarkable giving summers of our history. Not that I speak of need, for I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, which is why it is so thrilling to write checks over to the church instead of padding our bank accounts. Your needs will be met this summer, so when you go on vacation, go online before you go or while you're away, click on online giving, put in your visa number or your routing number to your bank and just let it flow while you're having a good time with Jesus in the mountains where people keep their clothes on. You don't understand that at all. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, that little pre-sermon sermon is an overflow of how much I love Bethlehem and how glad I am to be here and how much it satisfies my soul to support this church in every way I can. And I'm just inviting the family, not visitors, that's not what they're called to do, the family, to follow me. And now we turn to your word. This is why we're here at this point in the service, is to hear you speak. My voice is of little account if it's at all out of sync with yours. Bring me now into sync with your holy word and minister life to your people and make those who are not yet yours, yours. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are at John chapter four. We're gonna cover, Lord willing, some of verses 20 to 26. And oh, how much there is in these few verses about the glory of our Savior and our Father in heaven. So by way of summary, verses one to 15 of this story of the woman at the well, by way of summary, verses one to 15 talked about Jesus as the living water. If you knew who it was, who is speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water and that water would become in you, ma'am, a well of water, welling up, springing up to eternal life and she didn't get it at all. And then last time, last week, we looked at verses 16 to 19, where he said, go get your husband. She said, I don't have one. He said, you're right, you don't have one. You had, you've had five, and you're living with your boyfriend. And she says, you're a prophet. And he is indeed a prophet. And he was laying bare her heart, which is what prophetic speech does. It penetrates through calluses of the heart and taste buds for Jesus on the tongue that have grown over. So that when you put your soul's tongue to Jesus, you don't taste anything. Prophetic speech is designed to slice that thing off of there and make it livid life bleedingly sensitive to the Savior. So he did that for her, and she still didn't get it. So here we are now with her diversion. We're gonna meet Jesus not as living water, not as prophet, but as Savior. And I'll try to show you that as we go along. To get away from his prophetic word, she brings up the issue of worship. 
verse 20. Um, uh, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. But you, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, Jesus is willing to leave behind the adultery issue at this point. He, he just lets it go. It never shows up again. And he goes with her on this seeming rabbit trail. It's not a rabbit trail. He goes with her to the topic of worship, but he doesn't go with her to the issue she raises because she is still on the surface. He's working to get into her with living water and with prophetic speech and she's just resisting and she stays on the surface and what does she, I mean worship is a great thing to talk about. I mean worship is all about the heart, connecting with God with affection and wonder and awe and repentance and love and praise. It's all about what's going on here. And she says, we say this mountain, you say that mountain, which mountain? which is so absolutely superficial. That's where she still is and where probably some of you are. You deal in religion and not relationship. So Jesus says in verse 21, woman, believe me. There's probably more there than just trust me. I'm going to tell you something true. That's probably the main thing it is, but believe me, trust me, trust me. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain, this Samaritan place of worship, nor in Jerusalem, that Jewish place of worship, will you worship the Father. So he begins with a negation. You're asking me which mountain? Mount Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, and I'm telling you, neither. So he's not going to enter this debate. She, that is not the answer she expected. That is a stunning answer for a Jew to give, isn't it? I mean, a Jewish person, what is Jerusalem? It's the city of David. It's the city of the king. It's the place of the temple. That's where you go. Queen of Sheba goes there. People stream to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, the hour is coming that won't be true anymore. Geography is vanishing as an issue in worship. It's not the answer she expected. She expected a good argument. He's going to mount arguments for Jerusalem and she's going to counter argument with uh, Gerizim and, and they'll forget about adultery. Instead, he says, ma'am, we are on the brink of something so new, so different. The hour is coming. And we're going to hear him say in just a moment, and now is. He didn't say it yet. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. Instead of where, ma'am, the issue is whom and how. Whom should you worship and how should you worship? So the first pointer to this whom question is the term the Father. I mean, I'm surprised. Look at the end of verse 21. The hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. How did that sound to her? The Father. She hadn't said anything about the Father. Why didn't he say, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship God? Well, the Lord, 
That would have connected with her. I wonder when he said the father, what did she think? What, what, what do you mean, the father? I'll give you three reasons why I think he said the father. Number one, to link with her reference to the fathers. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you remember, she had said earlier in verse 12, are you greater than our father, Jacob? This lady is into the fathers, into tradition, into roots. She's drawing attention to our fathers and the father and and so she focused on the externals of tradition as well as place. And Jesus shifts the focus. He doesn't say, well, the real Jewish fathers get it right in Jerusalem. He said, you know, what you should really be concerned about is not knowing the fathers, but the father. You want to think about fathers? I'm going to tell you about the Father. That's number one. Number two, he points her to the fact in mentioning the Father that God has children. If you don't have children, you're not a father. Fathers are defined by conceiving children. If God had no children, he'd not be a father. So as soon as you call God Father, you think children. And the question is raised, who are they? Am I one or not? And so he, he's confronting her with a question indirectly. You're not going to worship the Father in either mountain. And so she's being distracted away from place. She's being kept away from the fathers to the father and now she's being confronted with the question will I worship at all if I'm not a child and who are they we, we know exactly who they are because he told us in chapter 1 verse 12 right to as many as received him Jesus to them gave he the authority to become the what children of God there's no question in this gospel who the children of God are. They are believers in Jesus. If you connect with the Son, you are a child of the Father. So he is drawing her attention to the fact that the one that you worship, that we worship, or you hope you worship, has children. Are you one of them? Third reason why I think he uses the Father at the end of verse 21. The Father, in the ears of those who are familiar with this gospel, and remember, John is writing this for us, not just for her, okay? She doesn't have this gospel. We have this gospel. We're reading at multiple levels. We're reading it the way she would hear it and the way we should hear it. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That wasn't spoken to her. I've spoken to us. So we know the gospel. And so when we hear the Father, what do we hear? We hear the Son. They're grouped. They're paired over and over and over. Listen. 335. The Father loves the Son. 519. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. 522. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John 5.23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 526. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. 14.13, the Father is glorified in the Son. The one to be worshipped here is the Father 
And this woman is dealing right now with a son. We know that. Whether she was going to pick up on that or not remains to be seen. His presence there was what matters with regard to worship, not what mountain you're on. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 19, which goes like this? Um, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's what Jesus said. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And his listeners said, how are you going to raise up this Jewish Jerusalem temple? It took 46 years to build. And we know, because John tells us, he was talking about his body. Really? Destroy this temple, and in three days... I'll raise it up and there will be an everlasting, immortal temple. Not a mountain. And you want to go somewhere to worship? You go here. Jesus. Not me. Jesus. That's what he's saying. The sun is here. Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. This text is about shifting the focus from mountains to Jesus, from mountains to the Father and the Son and how they work together to make worship possible. When the worshiping place in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, what happened? No surprise to Jesus, did we have to have a new mountain, a new city, like a Mecca or a Jerusalem? Or a new building, like this one? No. We had a new person. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise this temple, and this will be the temple that will never, ever perish and never be replaced forever. Jesus is the place you meet God anywhere on the planet today. This is what he's getting at. Not a mountain man, neither Jerusalem nor Mount Gerizim. Not where but whom. That's what matters. The Father, the Son, the living water, the prophet, the Savior, the Messiah. And now verse 22. Comes to the same thing another way. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. That's blunt and painful. The problem with you Samaritans is not just that you got the mountain wrong, you don't even know whom you're worshiping. Pretty blunt. And they worship on the mountain. They're worshiping on the mountain. And he says, no, not, not really. You don't know what you worship. Why, he says. Verse 22, second half of the verse. Because salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean? How's that logic work? You don't know what you're worshiping, you Samaritans, because salvation is from the Jews. Huh. Make sense? Since salvation... It's coming through the Jews. You don't know what you're worshiping. How's that work? Does it mean that all Jews know whom they worshiped? If you're a Pharisee and you believe the whole Bible, not just the Pentateuch, first five books like the Samaritans, you got the prophetic witness, you got the writings. So all Jews know who they worship. Is that what he means? That's absolutely not what he means. And we, we know crystal clear that that's not what he means because of what he says in chapter 8, verse 19. 
He's speaking to really serious Jews, namely Pharisees. And he says in chapter 8, verse 19, You, you Pharisees, know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. They're just like the Samaritans. They don't know God. Pharisees. They got the whole Bible memorized. They don't know God. They worship day after day in the temple and they don't know God. You worship what you do not know. And he calls that worship in chapter 15 of Matthew vain or empty. It's a zero. It's a zero. It is not true worship. So what does he mean when he says you don't know God because you don't know whom you worship? Samaritans, Pharisees. For salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean? How does that support their being ignorant of whom they worship? I think what he means is the Jews teach that a savior is coming in the line of the Jewish kings who will so work, so live, so suffer, so die, so rise, so reign, so atone that true worship will be possible. And five-time married, living with boyfriend women will be able to know and worship the Father because a Savior has come through the Jews because because salvation a savior is coming through the Jews sins are going to be atoned for no matter how bad and sinners who deserve to be thrown into hell will be forgiven and will worship as children the father And if you're part of that, you know whom you worship. And if you're not, you don't. It's too far ahead that you would have noticed, but in the last verse of this story, like you wonder, where will this story climax? What will be the last thing in this story? The last verse of this story is verse 42. And it ends with the people in the town having heard the witness of the woman and the witness of Jesus coming out and saying, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's why I'm calling this third part of the text Savior. Living water, prophet, Savior, Messiah. That's the outline I'm seeing in this text. When he says salvation is from the Jews, he means I'm from the Jews. And I'm here as the Savior. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said when he saw him. And these villagers, when they heard and they saw, they said, this is the Savior of the world. Possibly through him we could know whom we worship. And indeed they could. That's why he came. He came. We can know whom we worship. You don't know whom you worship because salvation is of the Jews and you are not embracing a Savior yet. When you embrace a Savior, when you embrace the Messiah, when you embrace the servant of the Lord, when you embrace the fulfiller of all the promises and the one who dies for sins and rises again and justifies sinners and forgives all transgressions, when you embrace him, then you can worship and know whom you worship. 
Now pause here with me and apply this to our day. Good night, this is relevant. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and squeezing in a lunch just before the funeral at 3 o'clock in California with a bunch of missions leaders who are really exercised about this. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, and all other religions that don't embrace him. What do you say about them? I say they don't worship God. They don't worship in in their mosques. They don't worship him in their shrines. They don't worship him in their synagogues. It is vain, empty, nothing. This is really relevant. We live in a day when the supremacy of Jesus is being questioned on all hands. The unique I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody anywhere in any religion comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. People are abandoning that truth right and left in the evangelical so-called church. Listen to these words. This is John 8, 19. You might want to jot these texts down so that you can consider them in a peaceful moment and give you about five passages here that relate to this issue. John 8, 19. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So they don't know the Father because they don't know Him. This would have sent them ballistic to say that they don't know the Father whom they claim to worship Saturday after Saturday with open scrolls of inspired Scripture. And it will send your neighbors ballistic as well today. John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And that means honor the Son not as some human prophet, but for who he is. King of kings, Lord of lords, risen from the dead, dying for sinners, Lord of the universe. If you don't honor him that way, you don't honor God, whatever name you give him. Third, John 5, 42. I know, this is Jesus talking, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. So there it is again. If you don't receive me, you don't love God. So now we've seen three verbs. You don't know him, you don't honor him, you don't love him. If you don't know, love, and honor God, you don't worship God. I don't care what ritual you do or how often you do it. It is something else. Whoever doesn't know who I really am and honor me and love me doesn't know, honor, and love God. And therefore, whatever they do in their mountains or temples or shrines or mosques or synagogues, they do not worship God. Luke ten sixteen. this is the fourth text. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. If you reject God, you're not worshiping God. Next, Matthew 10, 40. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. If you don't receive God, you're not worshiping God, and if you don't receive Jesus, you don't receive God. Last one, verse 6, John 5, 46, which is especially relevant for the Samaritans 
and for the Jewish people whom we love. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. So if you don't believe me, you don't believe Moses, though he be read in your synagogue every Sabbath. Now, I can see it on your faces. In a pluralistic, multicultural, relativistic, shrinking world like ours, this will be harder and harder and harder to believe because they're not just in Africa and Asia, they're right next door. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, and Jewish people. You know them at work. They're your friends, for goodness sakes, and you want them to be. And when they ask you, so you're saying, if I don't embrace your Jesus, you think I'm going to go to hell? What are you going to say right there? Well, it's kind of complex, and there are disagreements in the church, and, and there are a lot of scholars and a lot of opinions, and weasel, weasel, weasel. We got out of that last week, right? We're done with that. We are done with that. We are real with tears rolling down our faces. I don't want to believe that about you. I want you with me. I'm just a beggar. I have nothing. I'm nothing. Jesus came into the world to save everybody. He wants Samaritans and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and every race and ethnicity and socioeconomic. He wants us. He's reaching out. I'm talking to you right now. I want you in heaven with me. Go there. Don't get into an argument. Go there. Plead so that they see. This is not, this is not an argument. It's not, look, which mountain? It's not about mountains. It's about Christ, God's Son, came on a rescue mission to every religion, which is why Paul and Jesus and Peter all laid their lives down to reach the nations, the religions. All missions is going today to places that don't want you to come. You can say, well, if they don't want us to come, we shouldn't go. Baloney! There wasn't a city on the planet that wanted Paul to come, which is why he spent half his life in jail, beaten with stripes five times, with rods three times, shipwrecked over and over. He went into synagogue after synagogue where they drove him out. You don't go where you're wanted, you go where you're needed. You, you die if you have to in order to show who he is. Okay, that's the application to today of this Samaritan issue. You don't know who you worship because salvation is from the Jews and you've got to embrace this Savior or you don't know God. Verse 23 Now, here it comes. Jesus makes explicit the hour has come. This is huge. This is just globally, historically, epochally, that's a word, huge. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's good news. That's good news. And he's using you to seek them. We're the seekers. Jesus was the seeker 
He came to planet seeking worshipers. Come, come out of every religion. Come out of Christianity. All kinds of Christianities that aren't Christianity. Come out of Christianity and know me. I'm offering myself to you. I'm here. So he's seeking. Jesus is the seeking of the Father. Jesus is the incarnation of the seeking of the Father. That's who he is, and he's still doing it today. He's on a mission through you to seek people from every religion and every ethnicity. The hour is now here because the Savior is here. The Savior is here. The Son is here. Jesus is the way the Father is seeking. He sent his Son to do his work for him. And that's why... It is not megalomania for the Father to seek to be worshipped because he sent a Savior to be saved. That is, from hell, from sin, from death, from everything that ruins life forever is to be brought into worship. So you don't choose between am I saved to be happy or am I saved to worship? Because God is so honored when we're happy in him. But that's another sermon and you've heard it many times. When it says, verse 23, true worship happens in spirit and in truth, what does that mean? See if I can be very brief as we move towards the conclusion here. What does it mean that true worship Now, through true worship, enabled by the salvation that comes through the Jews, true worship of the Father is in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Because we want to do that, right? I want Bethlehem to do that privately and corporately. I want that to be said of us in heaven. They worship in spirit and truth. Well, I'll give you the summary and then just unpack it for two or three minutes. It means on the spirit side that you must be born again by the spirit of God so that you have a living spirit with which to worship. Chapter three, verse six. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Ever wonder what that phrase means? That which is born of the spirit is spirit. What does that mean? It means right now, if you're not born again, you don't have a living spirit. You are dead, spiritually dead, insensitive. The, the taste buds for Jesus on the tongue of your soul are dead. You lick Jesus, he's boring, unattractive, nothing compelling about him at all. So you can't worship spiritually. Your spirit cannot engage, your spirit cannot embrace, can't delight, can't be satisfied, can't stand in awe or praise. You can't, you're dead. What needs to happen? That which is born of the spirit is spirit. When you're born again, there's life. You have now a living spirit within. And that means that his spirit, God is spirit, and your spirit can have communion. You can know him, taste him, delight in him, his character and his ways, the fighter verse. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your law. Why? He's alive. His roots are sunk by the stream down into life. The well has been planted in his soul. It's springing up to life day after day. This is life. This is Christianity. So that's what it means to worship in spirit. Your spirit is made alive by being born again by the spirit so that your spirit can embrace God, the spirit, and know him, love him, delight in him, be satisfied in him, enjoy him, rest in him, be with him forever. And not 
always looking in from the outside saying, what are those religious people doing? Like a six-year-old watching sex. What about in truth? In truth. True worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, I think the most central meaning is in Jesus, the truth. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father in salvation or in worship except through me, the truth. Now, put those two together and you'll see how perfectly they fit. We must be born again so that our spirits are alive. And what does the Spirit do according to John 16, 14? He magnifies the Son. He magnifies Jesus. He draws attention to Christ so that Jesus Christ becomes the mountain. You don't go to Jerusalem. You don't go to Mount Gerizim. You don't go to Mecca. You go to Jesus, the mountain, the waterfall, the Savior. The Lord, you go to Jesus. And in that truth, you worship. Which means that all true worship is Jesus-centered. You try to do an end run around Jesus, you don't know God. Don't love God, don't honor God. We go through Jesus or we don't go to God at all. God won't have anybody except through Jesus. He means for Jesus to be magnified in this world. In spirit, the spirit's quickening of our spirit to unite with his spirit in delight. And in truth, in a true picture, a Bible-described picture of Jesus as the focal point of our magnifying God, never moving away from the center, who is Christ crucified. Now, one last observation. This woman is listening to all this. How much she's understanding, it's hard to tell. She's coming right up to the edge of the mystery. Verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. I'd love to hear her tone of voice here. I'd love to think it's softening, not dodging anymore. I don't know for sure at this point. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. That's what the word Christos means in Greek. It's Mashiach in Hebrew. Mashiach, Hebrew, Messiah, Christos, translation of, of Messiah. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> That's glorious. It can't be plainer. The long hoped for king, son of David, servant of the Lord, on whose shoulders the government will rest, on whose back was laid our iniquities. It's this man standing by the well. Takes your breath away. So here you are, listening. Thank you for listening. You've heard the old lunatic Liar, Lord argument for the deity of truth of Christ. Goodness, if it applies anywhere, it's here. You say you are the Messiah. You don't look like a Messiah. You're ordinary, except prophetic speech. So either you're lying or you're crazy or you've just spoken the truth. And there's where you are right now. You're gonna walk out of here in just a minute 
and, and implicitly you're going to be saying he's misleading me, he's a maniac, or he's Messiah. Another way to say it. That's going to be your stance. What will I do? Will I say, no, 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 I'm not, no, I'm just going to suck, get sucked into that, that Christianity stuff. Not, he just can't be, it can't be. Or, a big question mark in your heart, you go home tonight, get down on your knees and say, okay, come to terms with this. Got to be done with, got to be done with sitting on the fence of my life. I, I want to know, are you real? Do that. He'll honor that prayer. I have heard dozens of testimonies of people who got real with God and said, I'm willing if you're real. And he'll show you. He'll make it plain. Right there it is. I who speak to you am he. The hour has come. The hour has come. Salvation has come. The Savior has come. So I am the living water, and I want to become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. I am a prophet. I'm going to lay you bare. I know your heart like nobody else knows it, and believe me, knowing everything about you, I want you. And I'm a Savior. A savior that because I die for sins and rise again can enable fivefold serial marriages, living with a boyfriend, to be forgiven, saved, and worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's what I'm after right now in this room. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I. What more can I say except to say come by your Holy Spirit and give life where there's deadness. Cut off calluses of carnality from the taste buds of the soul and make your truth, your person, your son, your character, your ways, your promises, your purposes, your plans, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb, more precious than gold, even much fine gold. Do that for Christ's sake. There's not a person in this room or in this pulpit who deserves this. We're not asking on the basis of what we deserve, but because Christ died for us. In his name we pray, amen.